Hello, Gregoire. Hi, Edgar. Hi. So, what are we talking about today? Today, among other things, we are going to talk about how we question our patients, and、uh, this is going to turn around the question of aggression. And the first thing we are going to talk about is how can we know that we are not attacking our patients? And eventually, I will bring up the idea that aggression can be expressed through agreement. And finally, we are going to talk about the risk of oversimplifying the experience of patients. Thank you. That sounds like a lot of content for one podcast. Before we go into the podcast, we would like to tell our audience that this podcast we're presenting the content in memory of our dear friend and colleague Peter Yegerman, who died this January 2023. As analysts, when we don't think we attack patients by questioning them, how can we know that we are not attacking them? When we ask a question, yes. When we question our patients, question their perspective on something. Yes. Okay. It can be experienced by a patient as an attack. Correct. How do you know whether or not you are attacking the patient? And I could add right away: Is it always bad to attack? If we do, I think the experience of being attacked needs to be named by the one who is experiencing the attack. So, let's say it is the patient says that I am attacking. I think initially what I do is to lean towards the experience of a patient. There are two things that、uh, happen at the same time. One is I engage with the patient verbally, but I'm also trying to ponder if my intervention came with an edge, because I have awareness of how some of my interventions may come with some sort of an edge that the patient experiences as an attack.、Uh, so there might be some aggression, clearly. Okay. But should we call this aggression, or should we call the work against the resistance of the patient? You are turning around the subject, my man. <laughs> Isn't that what we always do? <laughs> yeah, but not in this podcast, Edgar. <laughs> so let's let's start with the first case. While、well, I'm listening to the patient explaining why they feel attack, yeah, that I try to ponder if I was experiencing some sort of edge in my intervention. Edge, an edge meaning. The tone or the words were not the usual tone or words that I use in an intervention. 
Yeah, okay. That might be a stronger wording or might be a more direct questioning of a patient's reality. Or so a sense that you mm-hmm. might have actually attacked Correct. the patient. That what seems to be a push towards finding the truth. Oh, that sounds so beautiful. So what would... <laughs> Would be, uh, it sounds like the push, usual BS we hear. Uh, a push towards <laughs> finding There's the truth. truth to that, though. <laughs> we try, but... Well, it, it's also the truth within the diet, meaning I am aggressive. Maybe that's part of the truth. Okay, okay, okay. That's a point that in psychoanalytic discussion that we end up to quickly. Meaning, it's okay you did what was right at the moment. Mm-hmm. How do we determine that? Do we believe that the all-powerful transference mm-hmm. and counter-transference is going to guide us and we should be blind to it? Transference and counter-transference is just one of many other tools that we have. Yeah, but when you say mm-hmm. or when you suggest that maybe you did behave in a way that was the truth of the relationship, mm-hmm. you are saying, I'm translating, and not, not just you, I happen to say that from time to time, and I hear it too <laughs> sometimes, but you are saying that actually it was a good thing to attack the patient. I am not saying that it's good or bad. I'm not saying that. Is it the truth a good thing? It depends if you want to hear the truth or not. Oh, okay. I'm just looking at the phenomenon, what happened in the room. If it's good or bad, that's not the role of analysis or the horizon of analysis to judge if something is good or bad. You are escaping the point. Which is? Which is sometimes it might be that we do attack patients. Of course. But it's happening in the diet, and therefore it needs to be expanded and explored within the diet. Because the same intervention that I may have with someone else, it might crush some other patient. And so how do we determine, if we can actually, Mm -hmm. that when a patient uh, feels attacked, that we did attack or we did not attack? To me, it's important, it might not be, but it seems important to me in a sense that are we actually the agent of the attack or is the attack a projection from the patient? From the patient. Which Mm -hmm. lead to very different diagnosis and more done to earth, lead to very different reaction on our part. Correct. So that's why I think the fundamental question of, I want to hear how did you experience my attack, might help me understand what is a patient talking about. I may not know if I did attack or not. It is a patient who is raising the point. What you're saying is that your knowledge regarding whether or not you attack the patient only is based on the patient's experience? No, I'm saying there are two extremes here. One is the extreme where I realize that my intervention came with an edge, what I call the edge. Okay. There I know that something was not the typical intervention that the patient might be used to mm-hmm. hear from me. So that's one case. The other case is when I have no clue what the patient means by you are attacking me. 
But in both cases, I think it would be important for me to understand what is what the patient experienced as an attack. Okay. If I know that my intervention came with an edge, I would say it, but not before listening where the patient is coming from. Yeah. I don't want to foreclose. Maybe I think it came out with an edge and the patient is thinking of something completely different. So I ne- I want to know that. But could it be possible that we would attack a patient without realizing it? Yes. So in those moments, it might not even be us realizing that there was an age to our intervention. Mm-hmm. If that's the case where I would not know. Okay. But you see, in both situations, if a patient says, I think you are attacking me, in one of those, I may have a clue about what was the attack or what was experienced as an attack. But in both cases, I want to hear what the patient means by me attacking them. I remember when I was in France, I was working with some kids and... I remember I got confused between two patients. Mm-hmm. And I attributed to one what another one said mm-hmm. in the session. I mean, like, oh, it reminds me of what you said last week when you said that. And patient was like, Ouch. I didn't say that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Um, good times. Uh, so I remember feeling petrified and frozen, being like, oh, that's very bad. What have I done? Was I attacking him? Am I not aware of uh, aggression towards him? Et cetera, et cetera. And I brought that up in supervision. My supervisor mentioned something, being like, yeah, well, those things happen. And maybe what you can make of it is actually don't shy away from it. Mm-hmm. And actually ask the patient, indeed, as you're bringing up, how was it for you? Correct. Mm -hmm. And then see if that leads to some association or if maybe it was, could be useful in a transference kind of situation. Exactly. Yeah. I agree with that. And that's why trying to understand where the, how the patient experiences the misattunement or the aggression or the misalignment or we forgetting something. What does the patient make of that? And you see, that's where, to me, it connects with what we've been trying to bring up um, in the last podcast. It's this question of where do we know what we know from? Mm-hmm. The risk in our practice is easily to determine that we are the carrier of knowledge. Yeah. And that to find an explanation that fits us no matter what. And I find that is a danger in psychoanalysis. It's a problem that I found not that easy to deal with in practice, meaning that, as I mentioned before, it's an easy way out to be like, well, well it's a cut-transference, it's fine. Like, just follow the flow, you know better, etc. While sometimes, actually, 
and I, I found that it was an interesting perspective from my supervisor that we actually step out of it. Counter transference, not counter transference, that's not the point. That the moment mm -hmm. the aggression or the attack has been produced. But what are you going to make of it in the connection with the patient, as you were saying? And how first you can say you're sorry, if you are, and then also try to see like, okay, so I made that, can we use it? Sometimes you will be able to, mm -hmm. and sometimes you won't. Correct. And I want to insist on that alternative because if we only believe that we behave in one way or another because we are reacting to a transference or we are in the content transference or in the transference, whatever, then we are moving towards this the psychoanalyst knows kind of dimension. You see what I mean? Yeah, I agree with you, which from my, my perspective... As I said, you know, my own inner experience is just one of many ways of knowing, but it's not infallible. So it, the data, so to speak, uh, needs to be wider, which includes also the patient. Where the, what is the patient saying? And at the same time, you cannot only believe the patient. No, that's what makes it so complex. And there are moments when I, I have to tell myself or, in fact, I have told patients, you know, maybe we don't know right now. Let's keep talking. For example, if the patient says, I don't know why I'm angry with you. Patient says that to me. Mm -hmm. I'm irritated. I may try one, two, three different ideas, but we cannot reach what is the source of the irritation. So... I acknowledge that it's there and that we don't know yet. What else can we do? Something is happening between the patient and I and it needs to be addressed but for various reasons, maybe resistance, my counter resistance or whatever, we don't know yet. Or really it's very deeply buried, whatever has happened, whatever trigger buttons were pushed are deeply buried. I guess it also leads to the consideration of whether or not the analyst has his or her own transference towards patients. Of course, yeah. Because some people believe that there's no such thing, mm -hmm. that the patient has a transference and we react through our counter-transference, a reaction to the patient's transference. I think it's more complex. Than it's just a matrix. The arrows go in many directions. I mean, it would be so unlikely that the transference would stop within the analyst at the moment he sits in front it's of the It's absurd, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. <laughs> but I agree. <laughs> yeah, it makes no sense. Yet, that is something that a lot of people rely on. Mm -hmm. They don't want to take into account that, as analysts, we do transfer onto our patients. Yeah, we project onto them. And that they might also have a counter-transference to us. But when you get there, it becomes very messy. Yeah. Of course, people who are working in the intersubjective field are beginning to expand on that idea that you just mentioned. So they talk about the repetitive transference and they talk also about the generative transference. 
So they are trying to look at the complexity. And the worst case is when my neurotic transference aligns and intersects with the patient's neurotic transference, and we are dancing for eternity, doing exactly the same thing. That, that. <laughs> that's the worst case scenario. That's, that's the difficult one. Yeah. Yeah. But so, just to go back a little bit to the question, I think there is a sense of virtue signaling when we are saying also that the patient is always right. You know, that mm -hmm. this time around, I'm probably um, projecting maybe in the future of my own anxiety about what how the social discourse can uh, could affect the psychoanalytic field. But currently, there's a significant shift in societies or in Western societies in which the women, most likely as victims, are more heard. Mm -hmm. And you hear a lot of... Let's hear the women. Uh, women's voice should be heard. And you end up with a feeling that when a woman is going to say, I've experienced an attack, mm -hmm. society is going to say, well, if she said that, it's true. We have to respect the discourse of this woman because historically women have been deprived of this consideration. There's something to it. A psychoanalyst, I fear that it would be a mistake to actually only stay there. I think it's a mistake to think that the patient is always lying because of resistance. Yeah. Not or not telling the truth. Not lying sounds more active. But not telling the truth because of resistance or is always right about what they are saying. So I think we missed the point in terms of well, the analysis. Why is the patient in analysis then? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. So if the patient is always right in the sense of knows everything, then what are we doing? And if a patient is never right because it's always resisting, what are we doing? I didn't see it this way. I think it's it's a very relevant point. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, that, that's what a, the heck are we doing then? Uh, a masquerade, probably. I play my part. The patient plays their part, and we're happy. I get money. <laughs> the patient thinks that they're fine, and we go along. Yeah, something along those lines, probably. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how the idea that the patient is always resisting is never met with its psychoanalytic counterpart, is that we are all ambivalent. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we are maybe always resisting as patients. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we are not. not. That the two things are mm -hmm. coexisting. Yeah. Otherwise, indeed, there wouldn't be any movement. Mm -hmm. I was in a clinical presentation and of a long-term analysis, and it struck me that the analyst mentioned that the patient had progressed, but that there were still infantile wishes that were present in the old relationships of this patient. And the analyst said, but I'm not taking responsibility for that. And it struck me, you are rewarding yourself because the patient is progressing in some areas, but not taking responsibility because the patient is not progressing in others. So what is that? Is it because the analyst is always right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, the analyst is always competent. Yes. Whatever not, doesn't work is not because of the analyst, because psychoanalysis is all-powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so. all-transformative. Well, it's our own religion. As we all know. 
because we went through analysis and now we're perfect. Yeah. So should our patient be? We're so sarcastic today, <laughs> which is aggression. <laughs> <laughs> it's aggression, but it's also relief yeah. and connection, you know? <laughs> but yes, it's highly defensive. Maybe I, mi I misunderstood what the person was trying to say, but Maybe. it struck me. I hope I misunderstood. <laughs> well... <laughs> Maybe maybe it's about you. Maybe uh, the person maybe, didn't say that. Maybe, maybe it's you were, me. You were projecting onto, yeah, it onto like, that analyst. I don't want to deal envy. with <laughs> my envy. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because when you were describing the situation, my first thought was childish part. I mean, how do you say childish dynamic? Uh, uh, infantile, infantile wishes. Wishes. They're never going to go away. <laughs> Did they go away for you? They didn't <laughs> go away for not. me. <laughs> of course not. I still see them. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> I have been in analysis for like, I don't know, almost half my life now. Yeah. So and so you, ha you are not cured? I yet? know. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'm not. I'm not cured. And that's the thing. I think we will never be. We will never be. Yeah. And psychoanalysis should not be about cure. Mm -hmm. It should be about helping people feel a little better and feel less alienated and feel closer to something of their self. Mm -hmm. But human psyche seems to be deficient by nature. And the way society has messed up us as well. And we are <laughs> messing up society. I yeah. mean, it's a back and forward. Yeah, yeah. About aggression, I wanted to address a different way to be aggressive that actually can be very unseen, is how we agree with patients. Mm -hmm. So you might say, well, I'm agreeing with patients, there's nothing aggressive about that. Let's give a very generic example. The patient is talking about this person and this person is so greedy. And at some point you're going to be like, something along the line of, greedy is bad, you're right. This person is annoying. Okay. What have you done here? Well, I have not done that. <laughs> <laughs> you have done it, Karen. I gave the How example. How do you know that I have done well, something like I that? I have mics and cameras in your office. <laughs> <laughs> and I spend the rest of my night to look at you. <laughs> well, you know, what you're saying is that the analyst aligned with the patient's I don't know, super ego, perhaps. I love how you use what I say and frame it with the good psychoanalytic terms. Yes. yes, that's what I meant. Yes, that's what you meant. So at least in my practice, I try to be equidistant from ego, super ego, and eat, which is an impossibility. But I Yeah, because they're <laughs> always moving anyway. Exactly. <laughs> but, I, but I understand what the intervention that you're mentioning happens. Yeah. And in fact, in that moment, we're aligning with a patient in an aggression towards the object, whatever that object is. Yeah. Instead of being the shield against the progress of Thanatos, the death drive, we align with it. And yeah, I know these things happen. I'm not sure about the death drive here, but... You don't believe in the death drive? Oh, I do. Oh, well, great. But depending on the definition. I'm thinking of aggression underneath the umbrella of Thanatos. There's aggression in a life drive, too. It depends on how you define them. Because to me, 
live drive is about connection and test drive is about disconnection to go back not toward death mm-hmm. but back to the non-existent mm-hmm. i think we had a discussion we had a glimpse of that with susan kasuf sometimes i feel like the life drive is actually going to destroy humanity this tendency to create create connect connect to a point where there's no rest my understanding of life drive and death drive is some kind of breathing i see what you're saying yeah between connecting and disconnecting mm-hmm. that we need the death drive has little to do with death itself it comes to a place of rest yeah of disconnection yeah but i'm subsuming the aggression under thanatos and also the self-preservation drives pushing against eros or away from eros maybe anyhow Our theoretical parenthesis is over. In any case, I agree with you. An intervention such as the one that you gave a moment ago misses an opportunity to explore aggression because we align with the patient's aggression. I mean, my sense and my experience that it goes further than that. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's actually what you meant, but my experience is that it closes doors. Yes, that you don't even realize it at the moment. No. But that you're mm-hmm. telling the patient something like, it is bad to be like this person. Yes. And what happens is that when a therapy keeps going for long enough, you usually find out that what the patient was complaining about in this ex-person is also something that they produce in their fantasy or in reality. And that what mm-hmm. you've been telling them when you told them, yeah, this person that you're talking to is annoying, is you are annoying too when you are like that. And that will organize a lot of the unspoken dynamic in the therapy. Well, in fact, when you, s- you use the example of greedy, I immediately thought, oh, the patient is talking about me. I'm the greedy one. I want you to pay me. Oh, okay. That's why I said that probably I would not align with the patient in that specific <laughs> case, yeah. in that very specific case. But yes, to say, no, that person is greedy and that has an undertone of something bad and judgment misses the opportunity to see if the patient is really unconsciously talking about the relationship with me. And maybe with themselves too. Or with themselves. Uh, it's bad to want more. And that's why now, or I mean, it's been a few years now, but I'm really trying to, no matter what a patient is criticizing about one person or the other, to stay neutral mm-hmm. about it. As much as we can. Yeah. And when I have patients who might be saying like, oh, um, it's not very mainly to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, okay. Mm-hmm. Because I have this hypothesis that maybe in the more or less distant future, this patient is going to tell me that they are doing the, mm, exactly the that. thing that they were mm-hmm. talking about. Correct. Mm-hmm. And so when we align with the patient, when we try to support them, sometimes we need to because the patient is, is in too much distress. But we have to keep in mind that actually without intentionally doing so, we might be attacking the frame. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yep. The premise, it seems like in psychoanalysis, it's pretty trendy now. To align with the patient? Yeah. I was teaching a class and um, one person said that the patient will be the source of their own resolutions or find their own path. And I expressed that the patient knows but has not 
thought about what they know because it's unconscious. Mm -hmm. So therefore, this idea that the patient will always be right needs to be questioned. Yeah. Yeah. Because the patient might know something, but we don't know yet. And you see, I mean, I feel like a broken record, but it's another example of how quickly we forget about ambivalence and about psychical conflicts. Yes. When we are positioning ourselves into the patient is always right or the patient will find its way. like Or the patient is always wrong. Yeah. And so we're going back to what we said earlier. Like, what the hell are we talking about? Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to keep supporting patients when necessary. But I'm questioning how. And I really want to emphasize that just siding with a patient, strictly speaking, and you might not be actually be able to tolerate the psychical tension at the moment. But that is our job. Yeah. To tolerate the tension, to tolerate the unknown, and to tolerate actually the fact that the patient might know that he or she is criticizing is actually within them. Mm -hmm. And when we can say like, yeah, you're right, those behaviors are really annoying. That sounds more like supportive therapy. Yeah, but we do that. But I don't know exactly what does it mean to do supportive therapy. The, the patient will feel better, I guess. And we will feel better. And we will feel better, but we have not moved anywhere and we have foreclosed the possibility of future exploration. No, maybe not foreclosed completely, but, but more difficult. It's certainly made more difficult. Yeah. What about the risk of oversimplifying the experience of patients? Not about unconscious base but about not wanting to challenge something. We are turning around the same thing today, but it's an experience I've ever had with, I think with every patient, but it came back more frequently or it's more on the front line with women or people of color, to put it simply, is the rush I could feel sometimes to be like, yeah, you're right. It's difficult to be X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. People are treating you X, Y, Z. There is a need, I feel, in some moments for patients to feel reassured that they're not crazy. Mm -hmm. So you have a dark skin in the US. Uh, you're not crazy. No. That's just going to be racism. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I feel like a psychoanalyst it might be a part of our work to be like, yeah, no, it's probably mm -hmm. there's something to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, but something to it is already a step. Not a paranoid ideation. Yeah. But we might tend to oversimplify those experiences mm -hmm. in a way to express our support. Of course, yeah. An example with women. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. It's very annoying when you have a lot of men who are just uh, shouting at you in the street mm -hmm. or having a very disrespectful, aggressive physical behaviors. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is not going to be politically correct, but usually after a few years or after some time, I found in the work that my female patients were able to get closer to a sense of ambiguous position on themselves. Yes. It can be explained that being mistreated in some ways, we integrate the mistreat mm -hmm. and we act on it. It's part of it. 
But also, for instance, when I hear a patient who likes to dress very sexy, I only dress like that for me. Like,、uh, yeah, and but maybe not completely. <laughs> that I don't think you can say right away. But if you only stay into the position of yeah, those people are annoying, you are in that sense oversimplifying their experience, and that is, to me, an expression of aggression.、Mm-hmm. But there might be something of not wanting to deal with the fact that we are complex, that our identity is plural, and of course, when you say that the way I do. If you use that for every situation,、uh, what I just said can be extremely cruel and、yeah. uh, actually unfair.、Mm-hmm. But when you are in a psychoanalytic frame, if you don't think like that, I'm going to be a bit blunt. But what are you paid for? Yes, the question that I ask: What are we doing? <laughs> I agree with what you're saying. I think it is a mine field. Because of the political discourses in, at least in the United States, let me put it、uh, away. Elsewhere too, and elsewhere probably,、mm-hmm. as well. But again, ambivalence, the concept of symptoms being overly determined, this points toward complexity. You know, we just have to look at the compulsion to repeat.、Mm-hmm. Sometimes the patient says, "I, I know, I, I don't want to do this, but I'm doing it."、Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. So it's more complex. It's not only about wanting. Mm-hmm. There's something else, another force or forces at play. So that comes from our theoretical background, but somehow we lose track of it when we come back to political discourses. We miss the complexity. And when I say that we don't want to challenge, I think that it's part of that.、Mm-hmm. As psychoanalysts, we might be perceived by our patient as somewhat disconnected from the world, but we're not. Mm-hmm. No, we are. We are、part. psychoanalyst. We are also patient. We are.、Mm-hmm. S- we might be supervisor and supervisee,、mm-hmm. etc. Yeah, we are not separated from the world. And even for us, sometimes it's not easy to take in that this is a specific space, and that in this space, we need to challenge what is supposed to be obviously not challengeable.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and we. I think we need to challenge it. Knowing that we are probably going to trigger very persecutory fantasies for the patients, so we have to do it very carefully and with skills and care. I have a guy who doesn't understand why he doesn't get to have friends, and you can find a lot of excuses.、Mm-hmm. Well, your life is organized around this. It's difficult. Society doesn't provide it. I mean, I'm clearly oversimplifying. So, for people who are listening to us, don't be like, "Of course, this and that."、Um, I just don't want to、uh, reveal specific details about my patients. So, but it might be uncomfortable to some to actually point to the patient. Well, you're doing this too. Yeah, this is a position you're locating yourself at the same time. Yes. And that, I mean, I think it's vital for an analysis to function, for the analyst to allow him or herself、mm-hmm. to not necessarily at any moment you need to have some clinical sensitivity about your patients and your own availability to challenging that. If you keep in mind that you will challenge your patient, I think it will help you 
not attacking them and i really think it's an attack it's it's not a mean attack if if that means something but you attack them when you are oversimplifying their experience mm-hmm. yeah. I, mean, i can hear myself in some mm-hmm. ways it's terrible what i'm saying because mm-hmm. you want to be nice to your patient and in some ways you should but if you don't challenge them thinking well it's society only well they're right it's their subjective experience so that's only mm-hmm. that's, that's i should side with it no so more complex you are so. siding with just a part of your patient mm-hmm. the part that doesn't understand why he Correct. or she are is repeating the repeating same repeating the same thing and you are telling the other mm-hmm. part just shut up you're not relevant mm-hmm. the thing is as human being it seems like we are hurting ourselves voluntarily which does not exclude the fact that we might be victims or hurt by something or someone else if we don't keep that to me it's an attack it's a very nice it's a very fluffy fluffy or whatever attack <laughs> but it's still an attack that's an interesting point i wonder if we are attacking the patient or attacking the frame which in the end it won't help the patient if we attack the frame aligning with a patient it's difficult for me to conceptualize that as an attack on the patient i think i understand what you're saying mm-hmm. but on the other hand it might be an attack on the frame so that we stay frozen in something that is comfortable we attack the frame so that we don't analyze but if you burn a house you might also hurt people inside the house i agree the end result will be the same i think we can also sometime be more or less conscious of our dislike of the patient yeah mm-hmm. and then siding with them because we don't want to deal with how ugly they are mm-hmm. not today <laughs> i'll try better tomorrow maybe not <laughs> this year <laughs> well we're coming to the end of the year so i have to rethink about that <laughs> maybe in a few weeks <laughs> in a couple of weeks <laughs> Before we leave, and as usual, I will bring up some additional information that we didn't think about during the recording of the podcast. The first thing is that regarding siding with patients, we forgot to insist on the importance of the how we agree with patients. Therefore, we forgot to bring up the fact that sometimes one will need to side with patients to allow for the treatment to move on. But when this happens, we should side with our patients in a way that will leave room for a later change of heart. Also, not siding with patients does not mean to be against them but to try to stay neutral and still supportive at least sometimes that's what it can mean also as we mentioned many times especially regarding social issues sometimes it is important to affirm generally unspoken dynamics yet i think that we should try to frame it in a way that will ease again a possible later change of heart from our patients doesn't mean that 
Our patients won't bring up their conflict. It could mean that they might bring it later than they would have had if they had felt like the psychoanalyst was more open to maybe something else than was first stated. Finally, I want to reiterate that this podcast is or should be listened to as an ongoing work. We are expressing points of view and it doesn't mean that we will stick to those points of view, but it's just an ongoing discussion. That said, as we mentioned before, we want to dedicate this podcast to our friend Peter Jägerman, who died recently. And I have to say that it is quite rich that it happened to be a podcast on aggression. <laughs> you think people will understand that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I wanted to say it. You wanted to say it. <laughs> because we loved Peter uh, and we loved him so much. But he was always struggling with his aggression. His aggression. (laughs) (laughs) And he didn't want to hear about that. No. (laughs) (laughs) But it's okay. It was okay. It's okay to struggle. But to him, (laughs) it was a difficult thing to admit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We met. Peter, many years ago, while we, uh, Gregoire and our colleague Tina Powell and Peter and I began training as psychoanalysts. Yeah, in the dream class. It was a dream class, yes. With Larry Sullivan. Yes. Was teaching that on the Upper East Side, if I remember. Yes, it was cold, I remember. Yeah, me too. It was dark. It was very dark, you know. So we met there and we heard Larry saying that he had been in a peer group for 30 years or so. And then we, for some reason, we connected, the four of us, and we became friends and colleagues and support system (laughs) as we were training. And we love each other and we love you, Peter. And I keep talking in the present. Um, Well, we still love him now, even if he's dead. So... I think we became better analysts and human <laughs> beings in general by being together. And so we, we honor Peter's memory. You would invite us to our place on the Upper West Side and prepare a very delicious meal for us. He was so generous, yes. He was. He was very generous and kind. Uh, yeah. And so it was, uh, what, 10, 11 years ago that we met? 2010. So 12, uh, yeah, well it's going to be 13 years. No, 13 very soon. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why we decided to work together as a peer group. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe, I mean, I felt like maybe because we felt foreign in more mm-hmm. ways than one. Yeah. But Peter, Peter was the only one born on uh, the U.S. ground. Correct. But yeah, didn't matter. Mm-hmm. We felt a sense of uh, camaraderie and um, support mm-hmm. while during our training. The nonsense that can happen in any kind of training happened in ours. And uh, it felt good to not feel alone, to feel supported, 
to have um, a safer space to talk about whatever happened, what we felt and confront our difficulties together. Mm-hmm. It was not only about the training, you know, it's, uh, it expanded into becoming friends and supporting yeah. each other as we had to deal with family and other, well, what life brings sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for listening to us. And, um, well, see you in a month or so. See you then. Bye. Bye bye. And hello, Peter. Hello, Gregoire. I am a licensed psychoanalyst, and I am privileged to be a classmate of everybody here. Thank you very much for the opportunity to participate.